Please join with me in prayer. God Almighty, we give you thanks this day for the chance that we have to worship you and to come into your presence, to hear your word proclaimed and to understand something new for us this day. Give us ears to listen and hearts prepared to be transformed by you and your Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd like to ask a question pretty often about how we describe things. And sometimes I'll ask how we describe something that we see. But today I've been thinking a lot about how we describe things we can't see. We're so good at describing things that we can see, but the unseen things are much harder to capture. Describing even the things experienced by those senses other than sight, that can be hard enough, like describing a sound or a smell. We can compare them to other sounds and smells, and we do that well. We do it all the time, in fact. But the unseen things, including our emotions, our feelings, our anxieties, our connections to the past, our fears and joys, and sense of safety and security, our connections of friendship and love, these are a little bit more difficult. They're sometimes a lot more difficult. Many of you are in professions that, that help people connect to these unseen things through counseling or through artwork, through music. We use these tools, we've, we've come up with tools, tools of psychology and therapy, as well as creative expressions to attempt in some way to connect with, process, and possibly even share with others these unseen things. Another way to look at this, have you, have you ever had a, a gut feeling? That phrase always makes me laugh a little, but you know what I'm talking about, the unexplainable feelings we get sometimes about something. We rely on these feelings a lot. We rely on our intuition, perhaps intuition gained from experience, but also from somewhere within that helps us choose to go left or right. Or maybe we think of someone that we love and we decide to pick up the phone at a random time and it turns out that they were in need of that very phone call. That's the unseen things that I'm talking about. The unseen things. Perhaps You've even felt the presence of someone you love who had died. Maybe you've felt their presence in the room or even felt their touch in a mysterious way. This is a, a natural part of grieving for so many people. And these experiences of the unseen, this sense of presence and other experiences like it, they were often rejected by the church for a, for a long time. But for those who experience them, it doesn't really matter whether the church rejected them, right? Their experience spoke louder than the dogma, and the church should be a place where all of our experiences, especially these experiences of the unseen, all of our experiences and each of our experiences should be able to be shared. And, and even more so, these experiences, especially these experiences of the unseen, these experiences that are separated from our physical experiences of life, these experiences help us to better understand what it means to journey through life as a person of faith, a person of belief in the unseen, a person reliant upon an unseen God in a world where we're surrounded by so many things that we can see, 
things that we can experience in our physical realm, many of them, many of them things that are painful and lead to suffering, while we also experience beauty and wonder and joy and happiness around us. There's, there's so much you see, there's so much in life that occupies us and our identity, things we can point to and touch. And we rely on a lot of these things. In fact, they protect us, right? Our homes, our clothing, and even our church buildings. And these things give us satisfaction, our jobs, our networks of friends. So we can see, I hope, that there are things of our lives that are seen, and there are things unseen. In my first couple of years practicing law, I spent much of my time assisting a white-collar criminal defense lawyer. I really enjoyed working with him because he would let me go meet with his clients at the jail, oftentimes to get a form signed or to just inform them about next steps. And I quickly learned that this was his least favorite part of the practice. And it was definitely my favorite part. Aside from the disturbing environment of the county jail, I enjoyed the chance to connect with these individuals who were in a state of distress. I quickly saw a pattern. The clients were all men who were in positions of power, either politically or in the business world. Overnight, and it was literally overnight, as nearly all of them were arrested in the pre-dawn hours on raids on their homes. Overnight, these men lost everything around them, all these physical things. Their money was seized, their power was gone, and they were now sitting in a yellow jumpsuit in an overwhelmingly smelly jail, scribbling desperate notes about their innocence on a legal pad. I had no reasons rationally to believe that any of them were actually innocent. But I saw in those men a fear, a fear not just of losing those physical things, their homes, their money, their power, but the way that their identity was linked to those things. The interesting thing about it was that they never seemed uncomfortable or even disturbed by their surroundings in the jail. They had just come from a lavish home to being behind bars, and this wasn't their source of desperation. Rather, it was the loneliness and the prospect of being alone and rejected once they were on the outside again. Really, the fear of losing their freedom paled in comparison with the fear of losing the people in their lives who they connected with those elements of their identity, the physical elements, which were disappearing fast right through their fingers. See, physical, the seen things, which become so much of our identity, can be lost in an instant, even if we're not arrested or a criminal. But these clients, they, they helped me see how quickly our identity can be shaken or even destroyed when that identity is linked so intimately to things that can so easily disappear. In our scripture reading from this morning, Paul is writing to a church and a people who are struggling with identity and also a people who are suffering. And he's writing to them with the intention of encouraging them in the midst of their struggles. I wonder how you encourage people when they're struggling, when they're suffering. I often try to look beyond the suffering. I, I want to remind people that all will be well and that there will be a time when the suffering is no more. 
And this does come from scripture, and it comes from a place of wanting people to know and remember that so much of our suffering is temporary. But we also know that the reality is that suffering doesn't disappear because we send a Hallmark card or because I faithfully pray for and with you. Faith does not render us immune or even vaccinated from suffering. Paul calls all of this suffering, and not, and not just the suffering, but, but he calls all of the stuff of our lives, our possessions, our bodies, our relationships, all of the wealth or status, all the things that we can see around us, but also the things that we can so quickly lose, the fragile things. He calls all of this the outer self or the, the outer nature. And so that's why he, he writes in the reading that our Paul read to us from the writings of the Apostle Paul, that even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature, the unseen, is being renewed day by day. See, Paul is realistic, and he acknowledges that our lives will not be without suffering, and they will not be without loss. And so he has us look around us. Look at the things that are important to us often and recognize that they're flimsy. He uses a word that is best translated as tents, like fabric camping tents. He says, these things are like tents. They provide something, but they're not secure. These physical spaces with which we identify, like our homes, our bodies, our churches, and even our cities and nations, but also our social networks, our cultural understandings, all these things are earthly tents. And Paul says that these earthly tents are insecure. But there's good news. There's this strange encouragement that amid all of the insecurity, there's a security found in the one who gives us a building. So differentiating that word tent from building gives us a building, a building from God, a building that isn't made by humans' hands, but by God, a building that the Holy Spirit creates within us and among us through faith and through God's grace, and that within this building is God's justice and mercy and that our lives can be the way by which God's justice and mercy flourish in the world. And you see, whatever, whatever we have that is fragile like that tent, the tent made from human hands, all of that, whatever it is in our lives, it pales in comparison to the solid, strong, sure building from God. Paul writes that because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us into God's presence, because of all of that, we have the confidence to live in a way of faithfulness. Faith, he writes, that comes not solely from our willingness or our desire to believe, but faith that comes from God's grace. Faith that comes from God's grace, faith that isn't dependent on our understanding, but faith that comes from God's gift to us, which is grace. Grace that is that very gift of the unseen, the unseen comfort and the unseen reassurance of God's eternal work. God's work that was present at the start of creation and God's work that was on the cross and on the empty tomb and, the, and God's work of grace given to you and to me so that our lives could be transformed. 
the idea of this unseenness of God's work in our lives is, is hard to comprehend until we think back to where I started with our ability to experience, even if we can't fully understand it, the mystery of the unseen in our own lives. The way we feel about a close friend or a loved one. The way that an uncontrolled smile or even tears come upon us. That, that intuition that nudges us. We're more familiar with the unseen and we're even familiar with making the unseen seen. We're familiar with taking inarticulable experiences of the unseen and bringing them out into the world, connecting our experiences of the unseen to our experience of the world. This is what happens when we're willing to experience and be transformed by God's grace that, that we might, each of us then, experience a further transformation from a focus on our own preservation, from our own self-interest, from our own protection of that fragile tent, a shift toward the interests of others. Paul teaches us that as God's grace spreads from person to person, extending to more and more people, the reaction is, in, in the Greek, the word is Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. So when we experience God's grace in our own lives, when we allow God to work in our inner self and acknowledge God's grace in our lives, our response is to give God glory, to live in that house that God has built, the house of justice and mercy and righteousness and love. And we live in that house and we give thanks to God and we share that grace with those around us. And the chorus of thanksgivings grows and grows and grows all to the glory of God. And in all of this, in all of this, we do not lose heart, Paul writes. We do not lose heart, even though our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. And this is grace. Grace. God's gift at work in us, in you and me. For this slight momentary affliction, Paul writes, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.